1: From MCIE. The best educators honor and take their cues from the interests and questions and experience of the learners themselves, the curiosity that all human beings start out with, and try to work with kids um, to create a curriculum that arises from and honors that.
0: That experience. Hello, and welcome to season eight, episode five of the Think Inclusive podcast, presented by MCIE. I'm your host, Tim Viegas. This podcast features conversations and commentary with thought leaders in inclusive education and community advocacy. Think Inclusive exists to build bridges between parents, educators, and disability rights advocates to promote inclusion for all students. That's right, y'all. All All means all. To find out more about who we are and what we do, go to thinkinclusive.us, the official blog of MCIE, and check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, if you've noticed that I'm trying to talk quietly, it is because it is early in the morning and everyone in the house is asleep. A line of storms, including possible tornadoes, are headed in our direction, and they're supposed to hit this morning. So I'm getting this intro recorded while I can. Now, today on the podcast, we have a very special, supersized conversation with Alfie Cohn, prolific speaker and author on the topic of human behavior, education, and parenting, notably punished by rewards. We discuss whether bribes or positive reinforcement are really the same thing, as well as answer the question, should educators abandon behaviorist ideas altogether? Mr. Cohen had requested that we make this conversation available to all of our listeners, so we have decided to publish the complete and unedited version. If you're a patron of the podcast, you can access a library of unedited interviews on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast to become a patron today. Your contribution helps us with the cost of audio production, transcription, and promotion of the Think Inclusive podcast. Thank you for helping us equip more people to promote and sustain inclusive education. Stick around after the break, our complete interview with Alfie Cohn. So, I'd like to welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast Alfie Cohn, who writes and speaks widely on human behavior, education, and parenting. He's the author of 14 books and hundreds of articles. Um, and when it's safe, he lectures at education conferences and universities, as well as to parent groups and corporations. Welcome to the podcast, Alfie.
1: Uh, thank you very much.
0: Or, or is it Mr. Cohn? Or is yeah, whatever you <laughs> whatever you want how, how do you how would you like for me to address you?
1: Uh, I guess Mr. Cohn is fine since we're not friends yet. It would seem a little odd to presume a first name basis. I wouldn't call you by your first name, but uh, it doesn't matter that much
0: okay, well thank you, mr. Cohn. Um, okay, so the reason why um, i I wanted to uh, have you on the podcast uh, is I had always heard of. Um, your work. Uh, and I finally sat down and read uh, some of it. I, I definitely read, uh, I, I went through uh, Punished by Rewards. And if you're not familiar with um, Think Inclusive or us, uh, uh, the our parent organization, which is the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, um, our audience and our organization, uh, we're all about uh, how do we create inclusive environments for students uh, with disabilities to be educated with their peers as opposed to being separated and segregated in other classrooms and you know we do a lot of work in in that Uh Um, and one of the things that is all around education um, is uh, PBIS and this idea of positive reinforcement Um, and so my first question to you um, to our uh, to our Uh, for you to address our audience because a lot of our audience is educators you know is there a difference between bribing and positive reinforcement because we have a lot of teachers who you know well they don't bribe we're not going to bribe students uh, but we are going to implement some sort of positive reinforcement to you know help students learn or help students do things um, you know like following directions and stuff like that so why don't you address that first
1: Well, bribery is just an impolite term, and positive reinforcement is just a euphemistic term for rewards. So for somebody to say, I'm doing the latter but not the former, is a little bit disingenuous. In both cases, it's about saying to kids, do this and you'll get that, which is not that different from punishment in which we say to them, do this or here's what I'm going to do to you. In both cases, we are doing things to kids to get them to comply rather than working with kids to help them become more self-sufficient, caring, lifelong learners, curious, happy, ethical, whatever our long-term goals are. And the research finds that rewards, whatever we choose to call them, or punishment are effective at getting one thing and only one thing ever, temporary compliance at an enormous cost. So, I mean, if I threaten to hit you, if unless you sit down and I'm bigger than you, you'll probably sit down. So I can say, see, threats work. What does it do to the kid's relationship with me? What does it do to the Child's understanding of why it might make sense to sit down, of course, we don't ask those questions. In the case of rewards, if I offer to give you a100 dollars right now to take off your shoes, you'll probably do it. And I can say, "See, rewards work." And similarly, if I offer a verbal reward after the fact, as in "Good job!" I really like the way you took your shoes off. You're a good shoe taker offer. That might reinforce the behavior for next time. But what does it do to kids understanding of the reason for this action? Assuming there was a good reason, which there may not have been. Absolutely nothing. What does it do to our relationship? Again, it has a negative effect. Now, instead of being seen as, you know, an enforcer to be avoided if I punished you. You come to see me as a goodie dispenser on legs, which is no closer to seeing me as a caring ally. And rewards like punishments make kids less committed to and interested in whatever they had to do to get the reward. That's what hundreds of studies have found with kids. Of all dispositions, neurotypes, genders, cultures, ages, the more you reward somebody for doing something, the more they tend to be less interested in it. So if you reward a kid for offer a prize for for reading, reading has now just become a little less interesting to that kid. If if I praise a child for sharing, that child has just become a little more selfish and less likely to share next time when there may not be something in it for him.
0: Hmm. Um, so I'm I'm certainly not here to defend behaviorism. Um, uh, but I, I hear do, a butt coming. Uh, <laughs> here's here's the butt. Here's the butt. Um, but I believe, as educators we have mm-hmm. a certain paradigm, right. Uh, uh or a, uh, understanding of how learning works. Right. So is the paradigm, the antecedent, the skill or behavior, and then the consequence, is that paradigm flawed or is it is like, how else do we explain learning? And I, and I understand the, um, the, the very problematic issues with, you know, ABA, like, and uh, I really appreciate your article on autism and behaviorism. Um, and um, so just saying that, how else can we conceptualize learning except for that kind of linear thinking? Is there another way to think about it?
1: Well, yeah, the best educators right now don't use the behaviorist paradigm. The best educators, now the ones most likely to help kids become lifelong learners, good people, and so on, have a very different set of understandings, or if you like, paradigms about child development, um, about human psychology, and about learning itself. Um, For example, the best educators honor and take their cues from the interests and questions and experience of the learners themselves, the curiosity that all human beings start out with, and try to work with kids um, to create a curriculum that arises from and honors that that inner experience. The paradigm of behaviorism, going back to B.F. Skinner, which incidentally was developed on lab animals, even though he wrote most of his books then about people, denies dismisses, trivializes, or simply writes off the whole idea of inner experience and looks only at behavior, the actions on the surface that you can see and measure, and as a result, miss most of what's going on, which is one of many reasons that rewards, at best, are not very effective at getting anything beyond temporary compliance, and at worst, actually make things worse because they ignore kids' reasons, their motives, their values. In fact, it ignores the kids themselves and only looks at the behaviors they engage in, which we try to reinforce or extinguish or shape as if they were lab animals. So if that's what you mean by paradigm, I mean, I'm not sure if the operative word here is paradigm or learning. But in either case, there's a range of ways of looking at learning and a range of kinds of teachers, classrooms, and school systems, depending on whether they're still stuck in the old behaviorist view in which um, all motivation is a matter of what happens in the environment to reinforce behaviors and looks only at the surface behaviors.
0: Uh, now, that's a, that's, a good, that's a good point, Mr. Cohn, because uh, in— I've I feel like I've read in a um, number of parts in your work where you talk about setting up the environment for learning. So, isn't is that not you know just antecedent strategies and another way of of uh, of describing it? That we no, 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 no.
1: Uh, I understand the confusion, but of okay. course, the teacher has a has a, a role to play in working again with kids not just doing things for or to kids, to create a culture, a climate, a curriculum that will be most effective, but most effective at tapping and nourishing the intrinsic interest within the children that is the starting point of everything for everybody who's outgrown behaviorism. Um, And that old model that, frankly, wasn't even all that accurate in reflecting human experience, you know, 80 years ago, and certainly now cognitive science, the science of human motivation has come way past that antecedent notion. Now, we now understand that there are different kinds of motivation that people have. There is intrinsic motivation, where you get a kick out of something and find it worthwhile, meaningful, joyful in its own right and extrinsic motivation, where something extrinsic to or outside the task is sort of goading you or inducing you to do it, namely getting a reward or avoiding a punishment. Now, the research finds not only that those two things are very different, helping another kid or sharing my dessert with her, because I think that's a good thing to do, and she Gets pleasure out of that dessert is completely qualitatively different from doing it because somebody's going to give me a patronizing pat on the head uh, and say good sharing or give me a sticker. But the research also finds that intrinsic motivation, the desire to help, to paint, to write, to do math, to clean my room, whatever it is is adversely affected by any extrinsic inducement. So it's not just that those two are different. It's that and the whole model that collapses the two and just talks about motivating kids and arranging the environment and so on in the behaviorist model is overlooking the fact that those rewards, including verbal doggy biscuits for jumping through our hoops, Actively undermines the intrinsic interest that we're hoping kids will have and take away and want to continue doing good stuff even when there's nobody around to give them a doggy biscuit for it. This means that exactly like punishments, even if we euphemistically refer to them as consequences, rewards are not just ineffective for the long term and for the stuff that matters, they're counterproductive.
0: So would you say then for educators, and we know a lot of educators who, who want to build strong relationships with their students uh-huh. who, who want to survey who and who are surveying their students about, you know, interests and passions and yep. that they desperately want to build up that intrinsic motivation. Right. Um, so what I'm hearing you say is that um, for all of those great practices that teachers are doing, um, if they overlay on top of that, Mm -hmm. this idea, uh, a behaviorist uh, view, even if it's just a little bit, even if it's just a a portion of how, how they approach teaching, that it could counteract or have a negative effect on what they're already doing that is good.
1: Yes, I'm afraid that's exactly right. So they don't do it um, to be nasty. Uh, they don't do it because they're stupid. They do it because they've been marinated in behaviorism in, in our educational system, which manifests itself in various ways, not only with garbage like PBIS and Class Dojo and red, yellow, green tags and other ways of treating kids like pets, but also with standardized testing, with scope and sequence Top down curriculum that breaks everything down into little bits and then offers, you know, reinforcement at each stage. Um, like most versions of classroom management and all of this leads you to, to, to do this stuff and assume that it's either necessary or innocuous or even helpful. So teachers with the best of intentions are pulled into becoming skinnerians, but the reality is every time you do anything like pbis any point system stickers gold stars grades when rubrics extra privileges and so on uh, um, you know money any any kind of treat that's offered has as an extrinsic inducement makes your job a little bit harder in the long run because that much more of kids intrinsic motivation has evaporated and so because this is really distressing to hear if you've been you know broad, socialized as an educator to do this stuff to to say good job a lot you know good job good job good yeah I call it uh, well never mind it's it's something we do in a in a sort of knee-jerk fashion and a little bit of harm is done every time we give that patronizing pat on the head because it's an extrinsic inducement. So we tell ourselves, well I don't want to do it forever, so we'll just give the kid a a jump start, you know? Mm -hmm. We'll we'll offer an extrinsic inducement at the beginning and then we'll fade it out as the intrinsic interest kicks in and takes over. Unfortunately, the research overwhelmingly demonstrates that this is a fool's errand, that by virtue of offering the the sticker, the star, the praise, the grade, you have set your goal back Now there's more damage to be overcome. Now it becomes a little harder to restore, to revive, to resuscitate the intrinsic interest in helping, in reading, in doing whatever. And all of this is even tougher for teachers in the field of of special education, where as the late Herb Lovett, whose books I highly recommend on this topic, once put it, the only two problems with special education in America is it's not special, and it sure as hell isn't education. We find we, ourselves in a position where we think, you know, with kids who don't have special initials following their name, you know, neurotypical kids or whatever, we wouldn't treat them this way. But with those kids, you know, you got to treat them like pets. And of course, the research shows you're doing more damage as kids with special needs and challenges start out with the same curiosity about the world, the same connection to other people. But now, it's much, much harder for them because of the sticker systems, the point systems, the praise and all of that, which has systematically undermined the desire to do the very things we want them to do.
0: Um, uh, I love that you're... Um... That you brought up, her love it. Uh, it's it's one of the learning to listen was one of my favorite uh, books. Even as an early yeah. uh, special education teacher, uh, and so I, um, he, I guess here's where I want to here's where I want to go with this because I, uh, you know, as far as people who are proponents of inclusion, uh, I can definitely see that this type of thinking. Uh, like what you said about othering uh, students with disabilities. Um, and already the documented kind of abuses that ABA uh, has you know has had, and practitioners yeah. of ABA on students with disabilities, um, I can see that as a huge barrier um, to to inclusion. W- would you agree that um, that students with disabilities, if, if, uh, if we weren't as focused on compliance and you know everyone doing the same thing, um, test scores, mm-hmm, that it would mm-hmm. be easier for students with disabilities, even significant ones uh, in intellectual disabilities, autism, uh, yep. it, you know whatever, it would be easier to include students and not separate them.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. The the one-size-fits-all approach, and for that size to be a matter of doing well on a badly designed standardized test clearly complicates our desire to do almost anything desirable in education, whether we're talking about social, moral, or intellectual development. There's no question about that. So the broader, the richer, the deeper your objectives uh, for kids and your way of assessing progress, the less likely you're going to be to to do these sort of pull-outs, which segregate and stigmatize and stratify kids. That's absolutely right. But what a tragedy if we argue for inclusion only to subject all the kids in a single classroom to punishment and rewards. You know, we, it, that, that's sort of like, you know, reading and writing teachers, uh, ELA teachers, who have become much more sophisticated in the way that they teach reading and writing with, you know, readers' workshops and so on, only to turn around and use rubrics to sort them and classify them. So kids are now trying to get a four. In other words, the assessment hasn't kept up with the pedagogy. In this case, by analogy, inclusion is a lovely idea when teachers are trained and help to see the value of that, not very different from school systems that call it inclusion because but they've really just ended pull-out systems to save money that's never going to end well if that's the motivation mm-hmm. um to so we pull everybody in the same classroom only to be having a doing-to management system there and not take advantage of how we can have a working with approach without um you know, carrots and sticks. Mm -hmm. You know, the the distinction between the method and the goal here uh, that we're talking about is, I think, is absolutely critical. And PBIS is a great example of that. You know, PBIS, and again, for these reward systems, let's be clear, I'm not indicting the implementation of such systems or programs. I'm not saying It's not being done right or with fidelity. These kinds of programs that rely on rewards and punishments, basically on on control, even if if it's sugar-coated control, are inherently damaging by their very nature. It can't be fixed. The B in PBIS is behavior. It announces itself as a Skinnerian system. But the reason it backfires always backfires, even if it sometimes gets us resentful temporary compliance, is not just because the method is flawed, um, counterproductive, according to research, and disrespectful, and thus ethically problematic. The problem with these kind of programs like PBIS is the goal is the problem. They, they don't turn out kids who are compassionate who are risk-takers, who are independent-minded, because that was never the objective with all of these systems, not only the high-intensity traumatizing versions with autistic kids like, like ABA, but even with PBIS and many of these other systems, the goal was never about helping kids, be who they can be. The goal is to get them to do whatever the people with the power demand. It's all about compliance. So with many of these systems, which again can be used sometimes in schools that have inclusion and other schools that don't, the, the goal is deeply offensive and problematic, married to a method that is deeply problematic. You've got the worst of both worlds.
0: Mm Hmm. Um, so we're, we're really close to our 30 minutes. So I want to make sure that um, if you
1: want to kick in, add another 10, if you've got, I'm okay with that.
0: uh, I do have, I do have some time if that's okay. Yeah. Um, um, so, um, I want to make sure that we get your thoughts about, you know, if, if PBIS is not the thing, Right um is it as simple as saying to 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 teachers and educators okay we're going to we're going to toss pbis out we're going to toss any sort of behaviorist thinking out right we just want you to develop relationships with your students we want to do you know we want you to um you know uh, f- uh, create engaging lessons you know, yeah. you, you we want to get rid of grades we want to get rid of homework and all that stuff. Is it, is it that simple or is it, is, is there something else that we can implement systematically to make our schools better uh, and the, the kinds of, you know, and create the kinds or foster the kinds of learners that, that we want?
1: Yeah, of course. It's not, it's not as simple as that. Getting rid of rewards and punishments, getting rid of the bad stuff is necessary, but it's not sufficient. If you got rid of all reward systems today, kids are not going to leap up and yell, hooray, now we can be intrinsically motivated. And it's sort of interesting to think about why they wouldn't do that. Uh, One reason is because uh, getting rid of that stuff is, as I say, vital, but it's not enough. Another reason is um, they may have gotten addicted to these rewards. I'm using that very loose sense, not a strict addiction, but... You know, remember, extrinsic motivators undermine intrinsic motivation. So if they've been subjected to this stuff, you know, sometimes for years, um, it's going to be quite a job to try to resuscitate um, the curiosity about the world and the intrinsic motivation to learn and to connect to others that they had at the beginning before you reinforced it right the hell out of them. Um, And a third reason they won't yell hooray, Uh, is because um, you did it to them. First, you did the rewards to them. Now you're doing the abolition of rewards to them. You can't move from a a doing to approach to a working with approach in a way that itself is a doing to, which means it's got to be more collaborative. It's got to uh, possibly be be gradual, but it certainly is a matter of eliciting their experience with being treated like pets, um, and then creating an increasingly democratic structure where together we figure out what we want, all of us, and what's a good way to get there. Now, that depends on the kid's capacity to articulate this stuff, their, their age, their developmental age, um, and so on. And that's where it takes, I mean, look, to be be crude about this, you know, any idiot can offer a goodie to a kid who jumps through hoops. It takes much more talent and effort and time and care and courage to figure out how to create an engaging curriculum with kids, something that that as I say, responds to their questions about themselves and the world rather than just give them a worksheet, you know, uh, or give them a textbook to read. Um, It takes a much more skilled and savvy educator to work with kids to create a caring community and to get together periodically in class meetings to decide how we're going to solve problems together. I mean, I've seen those kinds of class meetings across the country and, and abroad, uh, when it 's done right, it just takes your breath away instead of a list of rules and consequences, and so on. so yeah, this stuff is harder, but remember we 're comparing it to something that 's actively damaging, not just not just ineffective don 't compare it to a to a perfect world and i 've written books drawing on the books written by many other people before me and and since who play this out and talk about. What does it mean to create a learner-centered lesson that is truly about understanding ideas from the inside out rather than just cramming forgettable facts and skills into short-term memory? How do you do that? How do you hold a democratic class meeting? How do you do that when kids are kind of young and restless? Um, How do you do it if they haven't experienced that before? How do you do cooperative learning on a regular basis? There's a lot that has to be done in the pedagogy, in the curriculum, and above all, in bringing the kids into it. Because, you know, at the end of the day, kids learn how to make good decisions by making decisions, not by following directions. And it's one thing to kind of nod at that and say, yeah, I guess that's true. And it's something else to, A, figure out how to facilitate that working with approach in a classroom and B get over your own need to control kids and really part with some of the authority because I mean I've been studying this stuff for 30 plus years and I can tell you the more I look into reward systems the more convinced I am they are really all about power and powerlessness and every good job and sticker teaches kids I'm the one with the power to reinforce this stuff, so you have to do what I tell you. And on some level, even though it's sugar-coated control, you know, it's, it's sort of something that a lot of adults come to rely on and are nervous about parting with. And so we have to do some serious introspection to make sure we're psychologically capable of divesting ourselves of some authority in order that kids can become truly astonishing learners and caring people.
0: That That's an interesting question, uh, Mr. Cohn. Are we, <laughs> are we oh, capable? Are we capable? Yes. Do you, do you, well, because, well, and <laughs> uh, um, here's my, here's my other question. Um, I, I think you touched on it in your, in your book, Punished by Rewards. uh uh-huh. About change, about changing our our behavior, right? (laughs) Well,
1: more important than our behavior are our beliefs, our attitudes, our needs, our own inner life. And there's the I mean the answer is obviously there's a range of capability and willingness to do that. Mm -hmm. And some people need a little more invitation and a little more help and coaching. Some people need a little more. Some people may need psychotherapy to get over their need to be in control. Maybe they feel they don't have much control over their lives the rest of the time, but damn it, those kids are going to do what I tell them. (laughs) You know, I don't, and I've, you know, I've, I've been to hundreds of classrooms where I've seen an enormous range. I've seen some teachers where I just say, oh my God, I wish I lived here so my kids could go to, to be, could be in this classroom. And I've seen others where I think I wouldn't send my dog to this school, you know. And these reflect a lot of structural factors, too, not just teachers' capabilities. But, yeah, there's a range. And all of us can move. This is the takeaway, I guess, is wherever we are on this continuum, all of us are capable of moving in the right direction, albeit from a different starting point and at a different pace. To become a little less controlling, uh, a little less dependent on on the traditional kinds of teaching mm-hmm. than we were before.
0: Um. Yeah. The uh, I. I wonder. I wonder what advice you would give educators um who you know see that there's something inherently wrong with behaviorist thinking, yeah, but are stuck in a system that that you know the this is what they're supposed to do right this is this is what um their administration or what you know principle or whatever. This is the system we're we're rolling out this Right, is what you have to do. How, well, what do they do? What, what do educators do who are not sure that they want to partake in this? How can they change the, the their system?
1: Well, at the end, there, you added a little wrinkle to that you're talking now about teachers who aren't aren't convinced. I thought we were talking about you're about going you to ask me about those who are convinced but face structural barriers uh, that
0: are, I, that is where i was going I, I I'm not sure how that how my question got changed but that that is the, okay uh, teachers so, who so, yeah educators who have uh, who are up against structural barrier b- barriers for whatever reason uh, yeah. that want to move. M- away from behaviorist uh, thinking and methodology.
1: Okay, good. So now we're talking about a different problem than what we were just talking about, which is teachers who may have the kind of internal barrier because they've internalized this and they still believe that with those kids you need to offer rewards or whatever. Now we're talking about teachers who, who get it, um, but find it hard in the institutions they're in to do it. Mm-hmm. And here I think you have to move on two tracks at once. In the short run, you do what you can to minimize the harm of the, of the system, of the structural constraints of, of a school or school system that still gives grades despite the proven destructive effects of letter and number grades and rubrics, or standardized tests, or a school-wide program like PBIS or Requirements for homework, you do what you can t- to make that stuff as invisible as possible to the kids, as long as possible. Um, and me- this long term track you're working on simultaneously is uh, organizing and mobilizing other people who share your concerns some of whom are parents, some of whom are your fellow teachers, to try to change those structural constraints rather than shrugging and saying, that's just the way life is. It's like the weather, you know, we have this system. Because many structural changes that are mind-boggling in retrospect have been made by people who refuse to simply say, that's life, and they've changed it. Now, how does that play out, you know, day-to-day for a teacher, uh, it depends on – I get emails like this, care of my website, you know, every week, mm-hmm. and, I, and I have to apologize and say I, I can't give you very specific advice because I don't know you. <laughs> I don't know your background, your values, your risk your tol- risk tolerance for risk. Um, I don't know your administrators and the kind of relationship you have with them and the extent to which they can be persuaded with research and good arguments. Uh, I don't know if you feel alone or there's three or four of you who are ready to riot. I don't know what your priorities are, given that we can name 10 different things that are distressing about the status quo. All I can do is say, in each case, don't do anything more to kids that's damaging then you absolutely have to in order to keep your job. Don't censor yourself. You know, if for example, uh, somebody says to you, you've got to have a classroom management plan. Okay, fine. You can fulfill the letter of the law while making sure that your classroom management plan is democratic class meetings for the kids to decide with you on how we're going to solve problems involving no rewards and punishments you're told you have to give grades at the end of the term. All right. But you can do what teachers are increasingly doing around the country to ungrade their classroom and say, I will never put a letter or number grade on any individual assignment that kids turn in, even if I have to turn in one for them at the end of the term. And I'm going to let the kids participate in deciding what their end of term grade is. They told me I had to turn in a grade. They didn't tell me I have to decide on it unilaterally. So you're always looking for ways to kind of make the best and subvert the system that doesn't really make any sense. Also, depending on the kid's age and capacities, you can bring them in on figuring out together and lay out your dilemma for them. You know, there's this school-wide system, you know, they're doing accelerated reader, you know, which is an excellent way to destroy kids' interest in reading by limiting which books count and giving them, giving them a doggy biscuit for it. You. you can almost watch kids lose interest in reading in order to get prizes for reading books. So work with the kids to figure out, can we opt out of this, or can we participate, you know, with a holding our nose and not take it seriously, because we're gonna have these class discussions to understand why this system is so bad. So there's many different ways that a teacher can um, selectively ignore or strategically subvert a truly terrible system of mandates and structural requirements while carefully uh, figuring out what, if anything, I really have to do. And in some cases, even administrators have mixed feelings about the rules and the policies, and may be persuaded by a teacher who says, I think our goals for the kids are the same, X, Y, and Z. Here's some research. Here's some examples of programs around the country that use a very different and more successful way of reaching our shared goals. And who knows, maybe you not only are able to get away with something that's very different from what you've been told to do, but you've planted a seed of doubt that ultimately leads to those structural changes that'll make life better for all the kids. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: What you're saying is very relatable to uh, um, our audience and educators who who have the same feelings about segregated education?
1: Yep, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, That's the, par- right.
0: the parallels are um, are um, are are
1: excellent. Um, so, and I, and why we do inclusive education, as with the other stuff, is as important as as how we do it. Um, do you know Maris Sapone Shevin's book, "Widening the Circle"?
0: Uh, I'm familiar with it uh, and yep. familiar with the with the name. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. So she does a nice job in that book, widening the circle of talking about not only how to create a more inclusive classroom, but to ask the bigger questions of why we should do that, who benefits and why we're stuck to the status quo.
0: Right. Um, I I noticed in your um, article, I think in the Autism and and Behaviorism, uh, you -hmm. you talk about Norman Koontz
1: and uh, Emma Vanderclift. Yes. Um, Do you know them? I know them. They're good friends. In addition to people I've, uh, Norm is one of only three people I've ever co-led a workshop with. I have okay. a high bar before I do that. So, yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. I, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to name drop. Uh, uh, no? I, I, I feel, you know, definitely Norm and Emma, we're, uh, uh, we are running in the same, you know, inclusion advocate advocacy circles, uh, yes. And I met them a while ago uh, uh, and I think they, they're doing fantastic work. And so I, I, so I really appreciate, I really appreciate all of your thoughts um, regarding this topic. I think our audience is, is going to find this fascinating um, and you are so prolific in your writing and speaking. There's just, there's a lot. So considering our conversation uh, if somebody wanted to, to say, oh, I should read a Alfie Cone book, what is what would be the one that to, to start?
1: Um, <laughs> well they're not sequential. They're on right. <laughs> uh, I would recommend that people go to my website, which is Alfiecone.org, A-L-F-I-E-K-O-H-N, um, and then just look at the description of each of the books and see what if anything grabs you. The one you mentioned is probably closest overall to most of what we've been talking about, Punished by Rewards, which just came out in a uh, new edition with a new afterward updating the research on the destructive effects of rewards. Um, But if I have other books that deal just with standardized testing, just with classroom management, just with homework, and then an overall book that deals with uh, traditional versus more progressive approaches to teaching and learning, uh, which is called The Schools Our Children Deserve. So it depends on the individual's the primary interest in terms of which book. But I'm glad you're, uh, you're framing it that way in terms of which book, you know, because these days a lot of people say, oh, I've never heard of this guy. Sounds interesting. Oh, I think I'll go look on youtube you know so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right <laughs> um well um i typically end the podcast with a non education related question are you up for that
1: depends what it is but we can try
0: okay okay well let's go with a safe one so i know that you're from boston does that mean you're a red sox fan
1: no not really a sports fan at all not really. Spo-
0: okay so we won't go with that okay so sports is off the table uh is there anything, um, uh, any TV series, book series, something that you're reading, consuming, uh, or, you know, like the kids say these days, binging, um, that is, that is really taken you that you'd like to share?
1: Uh, not at the moment. I feel like you've caught me at a moment where I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I'm looking for a new series that I can get excited about.
0: <laughs> okay, well, what was the, what was the last one that you, uh, that you, that you were excited about? Um, are you willing, if, uh, only if you're willing to share, I, I really, no, no, I'm
1: not, I'm not being guarded or coy about this. I'm just trying to remember because some of this stuff fades as soon as I've, uh, <laughs> as soon as I have finished watching it, it's more like somebody has to, Goose my memory by saying, "Did you see X?" And I can say, "Oh yeah, loved it, hated it, indifferent to it, whatever it is." Um, I watched. I very much like um, Better Call Saul, which is a prequel series to Breaking Bad. Yes. And miss the fact that it uh, it's late because of COVID with uh, with a new series. So uh, that's that's one thing I liked, and I'm sure I'll think of three more either both comedy and drama series as soon as we hang up. As
0: soon as we hang up. Yeah. Um so I well if you like Better Call Saul, does, does that mean that you're you were a fan of Breaking Bad? Oh yes. Yeah. 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 Terrific. Fantastic. Amazing.
1: Yeah, good stuff. I just rewatched, by the way, the entire series of The Wire, uh oh. a few a few months ago, which is probably the best thing ever on television, with the possible exception of the Sopranos, and I enjoyed it all over again uh, even more than the first time
0: uh that's a that's a great reminder because um uh, i believe you know when netflix used to um you know mail you dvds instead of you could they, they
1: still can uh, I, I i just i had that i had a subscription up until literally three weeks ago <laughs> to the
0: that's why you got dvds from netflix yeah. <laughs> oh,
1: man. I, I, there, the only yeah. reason I stopped, I mean, the reason I started is because because little by little, the streaming Netflix became uh, worse for looking for movies. For, uh, they shifted uh, yeah. mostly to TV and mostly to their own production. And and they lost the licensing rights to more and more movies, whereas you could get almost anything Uh Movies, relatively new ones and classic ones by DVD, and I still have a DVD player. But the reason I it is fantastic. I quit my subscription because the quality of even that started to decline. Right, but I, I'm yeah. sorry, I interrupted you. Where were you going to say about that?
0: No, uh, oh, I think I said. I think I was going to say uh, when my wife and I were first got married uh, and we had the DVD subscription, we. Um, I think you know, saw the first couple seasons of The Wire and then just huh. off and and I've always meant to go back to it. Um, but that's another reminder. So thank you. Another Streaming on the HBO service, by the way, yeah. if you have HBO that. HBO Max, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. This is not a this is not a uh endorsement for any streaming, service, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> uh okay. Um, well, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, uh, Mr. Alfie Cohen. I really, really appreciate your time. Um, again, for those of you who are listening, please check out uh, the website and the books. Uh, and I would specifically for our audience, um, if you have time, and I'm going to put this in the show notes, to check out the Autism and Behaviorism um, blog post, uh, that you wrote earlier this year. So, oh, no, last year, actually 2020 a year ago. That's right. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. That went by fast. Yeah, All right. Indeed. Um, so again, uh, um, Mr. Cohen, thank you for being on the Think Inclusive podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate your interest. I enjoyed this. Okay.
0: That will do it for this episode of the Think Inclusive podcast. Subscribe to the Think Inclusive podcast via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or on the Anchor app. And while you are there, give us a review so more people can find us. Have a question or comment? Email us at podcast at thinkinclusive.us. We'd love to know that you're listening. Thank you to patrons Pamela P., Veronica E., Kathleen T., and Mark C. for their continued support of the podcast. This podcast is a production of MCIE, where we envision a society where neighborhood schools welcome all learners and create the foundation for inclusive communities. Learn more at MCIE.org. We'll be back in April with two episodes, teacher and paraprofessional dynamic duo, Megan Gross and Nancy brun as well as Jenny Kurth from the University of Kansas. We will discuss what support for inclusive education looks like and in the Poway Unified School District. With Megan and Nancy, and with Jenny, how do participation plans help schools to effectively include students with disabilities in general education? Thanks for your time and attention. See you next time, and be safe.